Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Easter Sunday is always special, but it's particularly special to me because this was actually the weekend I was baptized. And this particular Easter marks 10 years since that baptism. And looking over the past decade of following Jesus, I can see all of the work that God has done in my life, both in the really wonderful moments and in some of the really challenging seasons. And each year, Easter has been this time for me to come back to my baptism and celebrate what that means for me and see how God has been working in my life so far. And as exciting as my baptism and initial experiences with Jesus were, church itself was a pretty unfamiliar experience to me. I did not grow up going to church regularly at all. And my extended family that does engage with a faith community regularly are all Catholic. So really my only experiences of going to church um, before high school were the couple of times I went to mass as part of a wedding or maybe my cousins getting baptized. And it's not like I understood what was going on during mass as a middle schooler. So I had very little context to go on when I started going to a church youth service in 11th grade. And as wonderful as that was, and I learned so much about God and Jesus' relationship with us, I made a lot of really wonderful friendships. As great as that whole time was for me, those initial experiences were kind of weird. For example, why was everyone talking about the body and the blood so much? That's, that's a weird thing to do. Or every one of these Old Testament stories I'm reading, crazy, what is happening there? And everyone's throwing around these words like grace and salvation and forgiveness. But what does that mean to a high schooler who really hadn't had any experiences with church before? And I may know intellectually that Jesus died and rose again, and that means something for me, but what is it? It seemed to have something to do with not going to hell, which is great, but death and what happens beyond it seem pretty far away to a teenager. And if we're being honest to the rest of us too. What does it mean though for my day-to-day existence now before I die? At that same time that I was baptized and started following Christ genuinely, my family life was falling apart. My parents were in constant conflict and our money was really, the situation was really stressful and that flowed over into a lot of insecurity and turmoil for me and my younger siblings. And eventually my parents' marriage ended and that kicked off another season of a really difficult season for me and my siblings of strife and arguing and just trying to get through the day. And as a teenager, I was hurting and depressed and confused and didn't really know what to do. That promise that I wouldn't go to hell was really nice, but it didn't seem to be doing a whole lot for my day-to-day existence. And in that youth service, we went through the entire book of John for a season. And every week of that series, we repeated John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that all who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that is a powerful piece of scripture. And I knew that even as a high schooler, but often felt like a bit of a faraway promise. I only thought about it in the context of going to heaven and getting to be with God after I died, which is a truly beautiful promise. 
but does it mean anything to me now? Are we just stuck in a crappy life on earth until we get to go to the good place? And when we're celebrating Easter and Jesus' triumph over death, what does that mean for us now? And don't get me wrong. It's awesome that we are saved through Christ. There's a reason that the song is amazing grace and not, sure, that's cool, I guess, grace. But what does it actually mean for our lives now? Is our faith only about getting into heaven one day? Once we meet those minimum entrance requirements and check off the boxes, do we just get to live however we want until we die? And really, we aren't all that aware of our own limited mortality. So the idea of Jesus's death and resurrection is hard for us to wrap our minds around and what it really means. A recent interview with Tim Keller, a pastor and Christian author who was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer in the middle of 2020, explained our denial of death pretty well. Keller says that part of the reason we struggle to comprehend the resurrection is that we don't even try to wrestle with our own mortality. Basically, we all function as if we're going to live forever, Keller says. We are in deep, deep denial about it. And the only way you know that is when you finally do get the kind of diagnosis that you may die within months or weeks that I did, and you suddenly realize, I didn't really believe I was going to die. I really didn't. And if we don't really think that we're going to die, or we don't wrestle with our own mortality and what's that, what that means, it's pretty difficult to interact with what Jesus' death and resurrection mean for us after we die or before it. And it keeps our view of Jesus' resurrection for us limited to the future only. One day we'll be with God. One day we'll have eternal life. One day we'll be reunited with Christ. But what do we do about today? We can struggle to see the connection between salvation and our everyday experience if that connection exists at all. For example, you may have interacted with someone who is nominally Christian, but really doesn't act very different than the rest of the world. And in fact, might ask a little bit worse. Or it's entirely possible that we are those people for someone else believing that we are saved through Jesus' death and resurrection, but living qualitatively identical lives to those who, don't, who claim to believe in Jesus at all. Or maybe we're trying to follow Jesus, but life gets hard. Parents divorce, we lose a job, school is draining our mental and physical health, marriage or kids are a lot harder than we thought it was going to be, a pandemic happens. When our lives continue to feel difficult or lacking or hopeless after we commit to following Jesus, it can be really hard to wanna keep following that genuinely. Are we simply waiting for eternity to actually start? And in the meantime, we just have to deal with it in whatever way the world offers us. And all of this raises some really big questions for us as followers of Jesus. Does the gospel have anything to do with how I live my life or the challenges I face or the huge problems I see in the world around me now? Or is Jesus's death on the cross and resurrection three days later just to get out of hell free card and that's it? What exactly are we celebrating today on Easter? 
and help us answer that really big question, I think the best source really is Jesus himself because Jesus is the expert on who he is and what his life, death, and resurrection mean for us. And in the Gospel of John that we've been going through over this, the past few weeks of this series, one of the big ways that Jesus teaches on this is through a series of I am statements. And these reveal who Jesus is, his character and his purpose. And most importantly, they're a declaration that Jesus is God. And so they start to reveal to us the nature of our relationship with Jesus as God. What Jesus said about himself is key to our understanding of who Jesus is and what those teachings actually mean for us now. And one of these I am statements comes in John 11 in the story of Lazarus. And if you'd like to follow along, the scripture is going to be on the screen starting at John 11:1, 1, or you're welcome to follow along in the Bible app event for this service or in your own Bible if you have one handy. So starting in John 11, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Mary, Martha and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. And upon first reading this, it doesn't seem like the situation should be much of a problem for Jesus. One of his dear friends right outside of his immediate circle of disciples is very sick. And we've seen in other parts of the gospel that Jesus is very good at healing. So it seems like a no brainer that Jesus should just scoot on over to Bethany, heal up Lazarus and we'd be all good. So why doesn't he just do that? And in verse four, Jesus gives an answer, but even that's a bit opaque. Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, but in bringing glory to God and to the son of God. And that's weird, but that's probably good, right? It sounds like Lazarus won't die and God will be glorified. So Jesus stays where he is as much as he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And a couple of days later, he does decide to head to Bethany in Judea. And the disciples remind him that very recently the people there were just trying to kill Jesus. So maybe he should reconsider going. And that doesn't dissuade Jesus from going at all, but it is something that you should keep in the back of your mind because we're gonna get to that later. So when Jesus does arrive in Bethany, he receives tragic news. He was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. Lazarus is not only dead, but he's been dead for four days already. And we just heard Jesus telling the disciples that his sickness would not end in death. So I can only imagine just how confused and upset the disciples would be at hearing this. And it would be even more devastating to Mary and Martha who are also loved friends of Jesus. Lazarus seems way past any help or healing at this point. And this does not seem like the miracle of healing that the disciples or Martha or Mary would have been expecting from Jesus. And to be clear, Jesus doesn't just 
passively take all this in. He is deeply emotional throughout this chapter. We read that a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. And a few verses later, Jesus weeps for his friend and the pain of grief and death in the world. Jesus doesn't just love Lazarus and his sisters in a disinterested, conceptual sort of way, but in a way that is deeply personal and connected. Jesus hurts when his friends are hurting and he pours his love and his pain out with them that day. He mourns with those who mourn. And before Jesus approaches Lazarus's tomb, he is met by Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. And Martha's faithfulness, even in grief, is astounding. She believes that Jesus can save lives and that whatever he asks of God will be given. She believes that he is the Messiah. And Martha's trajectory of faith here shows her moving closer to the center, closer to Jesus. But she doesn't have one key piece of information. Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And this is a powerful statement, especially to someone whose loved one just died. Jesus is telling her that believing in him brings restoration and new life. It's not the first time he said something like this either. In John 5, 24, he says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And throughout the gospel of John, Jesus has been laying the framework of who he is, the one who grants eternal life to those who believe in him. Martha has already begun to trust and believe in Jesus. So she is able to step into further relationship with him by confessing that he is the Messiah and that she truly believes that he is the resurrection and the life. And there's a lot of good news here, but there's a really big point we need to unpack first. Jesus tells Martha that anyone who believes in him will live even after dying, not just after dying, but even and including after we die. And this implies that this life, this new life that Jesus offers us will begin prior to death and continue past it. Jesus tells us in John 17, three, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God 
and Jesus who God sent into the world. In his book, Eternity is Now in Session, John Orkberg helps to explain this idea further. The kind of knowing God that is eternal life is an interactive relationship where I experience God's presence and favor and power in my real life on this earth. To know God is to live in a rich, moment-by-moment, gratitude-soaked, participatory life together. To know God means to know myself as his beloved friend, as a gift of grace. To know God means to know what Paul called the power of his resurrection and the details and tasks and challenges of my daily, ordinary life. This is eternal life. Eternal life is far, far bigger than we ever could have imagined. And it starts now in our daily, ordinary lives. Those who believe in Jesus have already passed from death into life. We don't have to wait to die to experience eternal life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life now. And all who believe in him have access to that same resurrection and life now and even after death. Not only can we have new life one day, we can have eternal life in relationship with God today. A few weeks ago, Devin told us that eternity is not out there but right here, right now. Jesus is the resurrection and the life now, and all who believe in him have eternal life today. And there is power and transformation in the resurrection, even now while we live in this world, not just after we die. Jesus illustrates this with a powerful miracle at the tomb of Lazarus. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. And Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. What Jesus told the disciples at the beginning of the chapter has been proven true. Lazarus' illness did not end in death, but in bringing glory to God through his being brought back to life by Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, not just in name, but embodied. He resurrects Lazarus and restores him to life from the grave right there. And Lazarus didn't do anything to get this resurrection. He didn't complete some pre-death checklist to be eligible for it or have a really flashy tomb to try and impress Jesus or jump through a bunch of hoops. Lazarus didn't do any of that, but he did have a real relationship with Jesus. We do not have access to this new life because of what we did to earn it. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, not us. We believe in him and what he did, and out of that, new life blooms in us. 
all is made new through the resurrection and the life, not because of how much we do or don't do to deserve it. And that's not to say that following Jesus requires zero effort on our part, but rather that that effort flows out of what Jesus made possible in this new life. Jesus asks us to trust him, the good shepherd who loves us dearly, to give us grace and new life in him, not to try and earn it through our accomplishments or self-image. And for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and all of those who had come that day to mourn, this must have been almost too incredible to be believed. Someone who had been dead multiple days was now alive and among them. In the next chapter, we actually read that Lazarus is specifically mentioned as being a guest at the same dinner party as Jesus. The resurrection and the life was made real for them that day. And little did everyone there know that this foreshadowed Jesus' own death and resurrection not long afterwards. The raising of Lazarus hints at what is to come. And more than just being a parallel to Jesus' story, this miracle at the tomb of Lazarus actually sets Jesus' death into motion. I'd mentioned earlier that the disciples were really worried about Jesus going to Bethany in Judea because the people there previously had been trying to kill Jesus. And after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, many more people believe in him. And the religious leaders of nearby Jerusalem, who were already deeply suspicious of Jesus, become fearful of him to the point of seeking his death. And they succeed, at least temporarily. A few chapters later, Jesus is tried for crimes that he did not commit and is brutally killed by people he came to save. It cost Jesus his life to bring Lazarus up out of that grave. Resurrection and life come at a cost. God's love for the world and his desire that all people could enter into eternal life and relationship with him would mean sacrificing Jesus's very life. True sacrificial love is costly. God's deep, deep love for humanity meant sending his own beloved son to die on a cross in Jerusalem, bearing the punishment for sins that he did not commit. After a Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus was betrayed, dragged before religious and government leaders to be questioned and accused of crimes he had nothing to do with, and then was sentenced to die. Jesus was flogged, beaten and forced out in front of a crowd of people he had come to save who now shouted for his death and crucifixion. And then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called place of the skull, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scriptures that say, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. And standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus was nailed to, the, to a cross, an excruciating way to die, as soldiers gambled for his clothes right in front of him. The Messiah who had healed, transformed, and even resurrected his followers from the dead was now dying a public, torturous death. Yet even as he was dying, Jesus showed love and compassion, directing John, the disciple he loved, to care for his mother Mary as his own mother. His love was deeply personal, even at his death. And Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus's body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. And following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus's body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. For Jesus' disciples, both the ones who publicly acknowledged and followed him and the ones who followed him in secret, this was a really dark day. Their rabbi, the teacher who came as the son of God and the Messiah, was now dead and tucked away in a dark tomb. I would not blame them here for being despairing and hopeless. How could he be the Messiah now? How could Jesus now offer them forgiveness for their sins and eternal life if he himself was not alive? But death did not have the final word here. On the third day after Jesus' crucifixion, after what I can only imagine was a deeply anxious and despondent Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' named female followers, is the first to go to the tomb. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And honestly, I imagine that this was actually pretty terrifying for Mary and the disciples. I would guess that their first thought is that someone has come in and just stolen Jesus's body, maybe even one of the angry mob who had called for his death and crucifixion just a few days before. Why else would he suddenly be gone? So they go running to the tomb, and then when they all get there, they see a really strange sight inside. Not only is the stone rolled away from the entrance, but the linen wrappings that had covered Jesus' body and the cloth that had covered his head are just lying there with no Jesus. 
And it's then that the disciples realize what had happened because Jesus had told them, but before this moment, they had not yet put it together. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. And the disciples here go home, but Mary stays at the tomb weeping. She does not understand what has happened yet. And for whatever reason, the disciples don't tell her or maybe they tried to explain it to her, but she didn't understand or didn't believe them fully yet. But soon enough, her fears are turned to great joy. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, Hebrew for teacher. And I honestly really appreciate here that Mary doesn't immediately realize it's Jesus because we too are not always great at recognizing the presence of Jesus in a really terrible situation. She does not yet believe that he is alive. And so she jumps to the conclusion that the man talking to her must be some stranger, maybe even the stranger that took away Jesus's body. And Mary here reminds me a lot of Sam in Lord of the Rings. At any given time, Sam is ready to jump out in front of Frodo and defend him, even to the point of foolishness. And here Mary is ready to do the same. I don't know who you are, but you just tell me where my Lord is and I'm going to go get him. It takes Jesus directly addressing her for Mary to finally realize who he is, her Lord, alive and in front of her and asking why she is crying. He called her name and she recognized the voice of the good shepherd. The resurrection and the life is real. Jesus who overcame death and sin to come alive on Easter morning, he is risen. And the resurrection changed everything. And it brings new life to all who believe in Jesus. John 20, 31 tells us that by believing in Jesus, the Messiah, we will have life by the power of his name. And this is the promise echoed across the rest of the Bible. In Romans, we read, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. 
When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And in 1 Peter, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus gives us new life, a living hope that can never be taken away. And that hope is not just wishful thinking or optimism. Tim Keller explains hope this way in the article that I had mentioned earlier. If you just started to look up 10 places in the Bible, any 10 places, you'll see that the word hope actually means assurance. It really means proper confidence. My hope in the resurrection is a confidence that it's really going to happen. We are not just optimistic. We are confident. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a living hope, a confident assurance of eternal life with him. We are dead to the power of sin and death and alive to God. We are free to be in relationship with the source of all life and hope. All is made new through the resurrection and the life in Jesus. He is risen. And when I was baptized a decade ago, I publicly declared that Jesus was my Lord and that I was committed to following him. And the work that God had been doing in my heart for a long time before that led to that public affirmation of what Jesus was doing in my life. And I told you all earlier that in that same period, my family life and my mental health was a mess. And it would have been really easy to write off my baptism and Jesus' resurrection as nothing but a get out of hell free pass that didn't do anything for my day-to-day existence. But in the midst of that painful season, I do see that my life internally and externally was being made new. At the same time, my home was increasingly chaotic and painful. God was wrapping a church community around me full of loving families that offered me love and safety in that time. When I was feeling lonely and depressed, I was comforted by Jesus in prayer where I could pour out every crappy thing that was going on and how I didn't feel like I could keep doing it anymore. God led me into friendships that sustained and encouraged me. And many of those people are still people I hold dearly in my life today. Our relationship with Jesus is not just about getting things that we want or having everything go perfectly for us but he does promise us new life with him, a close, loving friendship that will outlast everything else, even death. In his great, great faithfulness to us, Jesus takes our brokenness and our sin, our pain and our hurts and our struggles, and he makes them into something beautiful because everything we lay down before Jesus is made new in him. Eternal life doesn't start when we die. 
It starts now because the resurrection and the life is here in Christ Jesus now. We are not simply waiting to die to be with Jesus. We have life with him now that changes everything. He doesn't just save him from hell, though he certainly and graciously does that. But in fact, Jesus gives us new and abundant life with him. What would it mean for you to have new life with God now? How could life look different if we already know that the resurrection and the life is here and among us today? Jesus has already defeated the grave and risen again. New life starts now. And when we accept the invitation of Jesus into new life with him, we enter into the process of putting our old selves to death and surrendering every part of our lives to God. And this isn't so God can lord that over us and just take everything away, but so that we can be made whole and God can give those parts of ourselves back to us with with abundance. Like Lazarus, we are brought out of the grave, risen with Christ and can share in his glory. We put our old sinful selves to death so that we can be made new and whole in the presence of God. What do you need to surrender to God today? What do you need to put to death so that we can have the life that Jesus promises us? Let's put to death our fears, our brokenness, our selfishness, all the pain of the past and lay it at the feet of Jesus so that he can make us new again. Our living hope, our confident assurance of our identity as beloved children of God is found in the resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus, death always leads to resurrection. And those many small deaths of our selfishness and our desire for control will lead to new life. And we have hope and life, eternal life for today and forever with Jesus. And baptism is one practice that we use to enact that new life we receive in Christ. And another is communion. Communion brings us back to the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before his death, where he leaves his disciples with a final tangible image of bread and wine to come back to over and over again, to remember God's covenant promise to us made alive and embodied in Jesus. Jesus' body was broken for our brokenness and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. It is an embodied practice that we receive with joy for it symbolizes the sacrifice of Jesus and his triumph in that promise of new life. Every time we receive communion, it is both a remembrance and a celebration. We are no longer slaves to sin and death because we know Jesus, the resurrection and the life. And in just a moment, we will receive communion together as a church to help us enact this new life that we receive in Jesus.
And if you've not prepared your communion elements already, now would be a good time to go grab them so that we can receive this gift together on this beautiful Easter morning together as a church. Remember Jesus' promise that all things are being made new by his blood. And let us joyfully celebrate that today because Christ has risen from the grave. We have new life and hope and joy in him today. So let us receive the Lord's Supper together. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink for it, from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Today, he is risen. Let us pray and celebrate together on this beautiful Easter morning. God, I thank you for the gift of your son, for what he taught us, what he revealed to us, you embodied and walking among us, God, living with us, feeling what we do, knowing what it is to be both human and God, Lord. I thank you for the sacrifice of your son. And we recognize that resurrection and life costs you dearly, Lord. It cost you your son. And we thank you so much that your love for us was so deep and so vast and so wide that you gave that sacrifice to us and that Jesus rose again to triumph over sin and death and bring us into relationship with you, Lord. We are made new and whole God, and we thank you and we praise you for that on this beautiful, beautiful day. We thank you for your son who rose again on the third day and we come back to this every year with Easter to remember his death, but most importantly, to remember his resurrection and his triumph, Lord. We thank you for the resurrection and the life. And I pray that as we go out from today, that we see how the resurrection is in us, how we are being made new, how our lives will look different, God, because of the resurrection and the life. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for this beautiful, beautiful day. Love you and in your son's holy, precious, and powerful name, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.